Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present a talk with Michelle Silliboy. My name is Mark Herman Lynch, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and the Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We also acknowledge the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. In this interview, Michelle Silliboy presents her blend of modern poetry, photography, and Mi'kmaq hieroglyphic poetry. She begins with a discussion of the publishing process in Indigenous hieroglyphics and language before reading a few pieces of her poetry and answering questions related to the importance of a language's survival as well as allyship. As I do this acknowledgement, I'm recognizing more deeply recognizing this place. Let me express my gratitude for being here as, a, as an uninvited guest uh, on these territory um, and not from this place. Uh, my own roots move through the, they begin in the Pearl River Delta. I've spent um, my, my childhood in Biotope territory and lived most of my adult life in Muscogee, Squamish, and Salish, Coast Salish territories and come, have been coming and going from here for a little while. So that by way of sort of acknowledging my own orientation towards towards this place about which I'm still learning much. And in the meantime, you know, much gratitude for being here. I'm going to introduce Joshua Whitehead, who will then introduce um, our, our guest today, Michelle Silliboy. Joshua Whitehead is an Ojikri Nehia Two-Spirit Indigiqueer member of the Pegwas First Nation on Treaty One territories. He's the author of the novel Johnny Appleseed, published by Arsenal Pulp in 2018, which was the winner of the George, George Bugnett Award for Fiction, a Lambda Literary Award, and it was also uh, longlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Um, he's also published a poetry collection called Full Metal Indigiqueer, um, off of Talon Books in 2017. And he's a winner of the Governor General's History Award for Indigenous, the, the Indigenous Arts and Stories Challenge that was awarded in 2016. And he's currently working on a PhD in Indigenous Literatures and Cultures here at the University of Calgary um, in, its, in its English department on Treaty 7 territory. Josh? Thanks, Larissa. As you can tell, I have my hands on all the honey pots, it feels like. <laughs> so, just a quick little thing. So, I get to pick up Michelle this morning from her accommodations in downtown Calgary here. We had some interesting talks, specifically trying, even just briefly before, trying to kind of Braid together, or at least try to get a similar tongue for Nebiawiwin uh, or Cree and Michelle's language. So I guess I'll try to do this in the best way I can, and the most <laughs> respect that I can. Uh, but I'm absolutely honored to and to be part of Tea House and to be introducing Michelle, both for this amazing book of poetry. Michelle Silly Boy, an Unu artist, author, was raised on unceded territory in Rigoma, which is in Quebec, Nova Scotia. She gathers much of her inspiration from personal tales, the environment, and her Unu culture. PhD candidate, Michelle is working on her philosophy education doctorate degree or in fieldwork where she will combine her artistic background and education by creating an Unuk hieroglyphic curriculum with Unuk elders. So I added the K because that should be plural, right? <laughs> Michelle Silly Boy blends her modern poetry, her photography, and her Mi'kmaq hieroglyphic poetry in this unprecedented book, which we have up here today, with a foreword written by award-winning Indigenous author Christos uh, Giska J.E. I Am Ready. The publication release is time to coincide with the 2019 year of Indigenous languages and the launch of Michelle Silly Boy's Mi'kmaq hieroglyphic art exhibit in Nova Scotia. The International Year of Indigenous Languages is a United Nations observance in 2019 that aims to raise awareness of the consequences of the endangerment of Indigenous languages across the world, with an aim to establish a link between language, development, peace, and reconciliation. 
So without further ado, um, and the highest degree of honor I can give, please welcome Michelle Silly <laughs> Thank you for being here, and thanks for having me. I was very lucky, the publisher that I was, that published my book, I had contacted them, and I had another publisher contact me around November, and he was a children's publisher, and he emailed me, because he told me, we've been following you, and we'd like to publish you. And it's a nice, you know, it's a dream email to get for any writer. Like I didn't even have to approach anybody. I was approached. And I was very honored. And I said, well, I'm doing my PhD, the, the language. And we call them, well, my elders call them, it's on the title. So, is a soccer fish. And the second half, we got signal means rights. So the sacrifice when they move about they do rights. And so the language is very descriptive. I think my language is further So it's action, it's describing something and the the hieroglyphics themselves lend to that. And so when I was doing my proposal and when I entered the PhD program I decided to modernize and kind of reclaim the historical narrative around the, the language itself. Because it was originally, I brought it, I'm not going to let you touch it because it's like 200 years old, but um, it was in my father's attic. When the language was, uh, the way the language was preserved was a priest spent time with my ancestors in the early mid-1600s. And he had a hard time uh, converting my ancestors to Catholicism. But, and so one day, and you write this autobiography, you can read this autobiography and decide for yourself uh, how to interpret it. But throughout his uh, autobiography. He kind of outs himself because he he does claim that he invented a writing system, but he also claims in the same autobiography he saw children writing on birch bark after every catechism lesson. And within the um, same autobiography, he also admits that there was a traveler, a trapper, who came to see him and said, I just met a group of native people who've never met a white man before, and there was crosses in the village. And so the priest was curious, and he was uh, at the time in the Gaspé region, and that Gaspé region is uh, right along past the St. Lawrence River and New Brunswick, Brunswick. So there's a large region, and so he took off with the trapper to go witness these people. And in his story, he goes, I was pleasantly surprised that these people understood the language. And so he kind of outs himself several times. But yet he also says, I invented the language system to convert to new He called us Gaspians. It, it was a very, it was difficult to read that particular autobiography because one, he's criticizing my ancestors, and two, he never once named them. There's no naming. So he, he spent many years with my ancestors, not one name. So, and every time he talks about somebody, he criticizes them. And it didn't matter what it was, it was always criticism. So it was very difficult. And if you read any historical autobiographies about your own people, you wouldn't be surprised if, unless they were a chief, they never get named. Nobody gets named. And so he put together, uh, translated all the Catholic prayers into the hieroglyphics and had, had it published, printed in Vienna. And so this particular, these are all um, Catholic prayers. My father 
It was in my parents' attic. I had to clean up the attic to get it insulated on a box. There was uh, other prayer prayer books, all in the, in, in the phonetic language. But this one is the hieroglyphics, and they're not translated. So I grew up, see, they're not translated. My elders that I grew up with, um, they, they were fluent in the reading. And so I'm 51, so my elders that I grew up with as a child, I remember seeing them read from their own Catholic books, right? Mm -hmm. and so it was the, see, I remember, uh, we, we call him Uncle Charlie, because if you're older, it's auntie and uncle, right? So Uncle Charlie always read from prayer books, and he was a, a beautiful singer. I remember that about him, but I also remember him reading from that, from this book. Almost every family had a copy. And so I'm probably two generations removed from the fluent readers. And that's not a long time. And so the way my elder, who wrote uh, the, the first historical um, book about the hieroglyphics, her name was Merlina Marshall, and she did... Um, she co-wrote with the linguist called David Schiff. And, they, and she talks about what her elders told her. And Merdina was my mom's cousin. And they, they spent a lot of time together when they were uh, much younger. And so she was my mentor before she passed away, her husband, Albert. And I remember asking her questions and trying to figure out what is this journey that I'm on? And I needed to uh, hear from the elders and also try to figure out how am I going to make this meaningful and why am I drawn to it? And it's not the, like, it's not the first time I was drawn to the hieroglyphics. When I was 19, I, I did uh, a TYP program in Toronto. I, left my territory and went to Toronto in 1986. And um, when I turned 19 in Toronto, I entered into the transition and I started to meet people who were wanting to get their education. And a friend of mine from Elsie Book Group, who are really good friends today, um, we started missing families and my territory. She was from the Brunswick, I was from the Brunswick. And we started talking about our language, and in particular, the written language. And we adopted the phonetic system, and that was you know, well known. And then, but nobody ever talked about the, the hieroglyphic system. And the hieroglyphic system, the only time I saw the, the hieroglyphics was the Lord's Prayer, which was in my parents' home. So I remember seeing it. But I often wondered, why can't I read it? This particular version, if you look at the history of Catholicism, prayers change. Right? They get updated, they modernize. And this particular Lord's Prayer, to me, I thought it was hilarious. And I wish they kept it, but it's too. It's too hip. <laughs> because within the Lord's Prayer, it, it kept saying, probably. <laughs> and that doesn't exist if you know that if you're, if you're family, that probably doesn't exist, right? And so I thought, wow, what a fascinating uh, you know, example of something that probably existed. Right? So like our father who probably are together. <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably I will go to hell. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it was throughout the whole piece. And and I started to research the Lord's Prayer. Sure enough, each century it would change. And so, but that's my favorite one. And that was in all Mi'kmaq homes. It was a scroll. And so, when I... Back in Toronto, my friend Bernadette and I, she was from the Simon family, and they were very creative. Her brothers were artists and writers, and she was my 
uh, older sister mentor. And so we started to research the hieroglyphics. And this was in 1988. And so the summer that after I finished the TYP program, I, my creativity started to show. We spent time that winter looking for our language. And there was no internet then. You had to go to the library. You had to go wherever the documents were. And we did. And I decided to silk screen hieroglyphics on t-shirts. And in Toronto, there was a lot of vendors on Queen Street and Young Street. I was one of them. And this was my sign. And you can see, if I still use the, the old knick-knack words, right? We don't say that we don't write it this way anymore. But I've kept this. I've had this since 1988. And when I left Toronto, I hitchhiked across Canada and for $87. And the first stop was Winnipeg. My friend Connie Pike used to live in Winnipeg. She passed away now. She was my, the first poet that I met in Toronto. She used to live in Toronto. Russell was just a little kid. I was, I was determined to keep this, and I didn't know if I would have this to this day. And I would go back to it over the years. And I mentioned this because it doesn't always uh, happen overnight. And there's a process to this. Uh, while doing my uh, PhD courses, I discovered that I have to think about my language in a way that how do I describe this process? Where did it begin? And this came up. And so, in the Nima language, there's no word for goodbye. We say Namuntis. And Namuntis basically just means see you later. And see you later whether in person or if, if this is the last time I'm going to see you and you happen to get hit by a bus, then I'll see you in the spirit. You always say Namuntis. So, there's no word for goodbye. So I wrote this paper about Namuntis. I realized, I kept saying to this ancestor, because it is a sister, the deer is my ancestor, and the deer has given me a lot of knowledge, you know, subconsciously, I guess, of all the things. I don't have anything else from 1986, 1988. Nothing. It followed me. And I went out west, I went to Vancouver, and I remember arriving in Vancouver and I couldn't find my track. And I decided to, to leave Vancouver each day, and I went to Banff. I spent the winter in Banff. And that was a very important time for me because I was 20 years old. And I met elders from Maury. And that elders from. It's usually called the Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And what do they call it now? Transcochis. Okay. I met elders from from there, because um, I worked at the at the time when it was really happening, the Bank Indian Trading Post. How I met all these elders, and the owners then, because the daughter is almost runs it now. She doesn't buy from the people anymore. But back then, they used to buy all the native arts and crafts from the natives from all over. And they would come in. And they ended up being my teachers. And each, where, each place I went, the elders would take time to look out for me. They had these, I had you know, hidden aunties everywhere. And I remember one elder, she didn't speak a word of English, so her husband did all the buying and the yakking because he was a really good salesman. Happens <laughs> way. And this one elder, she would always come along. She just, you know, must have reminded her of one of her grandchildren. And she would just grab my hand and go like this. But there was also other elders. I never forgot them because they would uh, teach me about going into the land. And they taught me how to offer the tobacco and tobacco tires. And we were going to the mountain. 
and say my prayers. So my teachings, my, it didn't even come from my elders. I ended up learning this from the elders here. And it stuck with me because those teachings, no matter where I went, I would always go back to the mountain. I kept saying, oh, this move, this move, this. And I ended up going back to Vancouver. And I, I did my education. I went to Langara and Dakar and Santa Cruz. But I did my undergrad at Langara and Dakar in fine arts. So I do photography and I do visual arts. And each time I would go back to this, but in a different capacity. And I guess I must have worn out my friend's ears because I kept saying, I'm going to do something with this language. And they reminded me when I started to do my uh, PhD. I said, Michelle, you've been talking about this for a long time. So I did the coursework at Final Fantasy. And I knew I was going to, I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, it's an education, philosophy of education. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to create a curriculum. I'm going to create a curriculum. So I went home. And I always went home in the summer because I worked in the school system. So I had summers off. And I was privileged that way. And I would drive across Canada. And I would call Larissa at the last minute. Oh, driver nuts. <laughs> I gave you at least six hours. <laughs> but I would drive across Canada every summer. And it was better than hitchhiking when I was 19. So, but, anyways, I get home, I left everything, and I did I left my job, my partner, my friends. I spent 27 years in that more than my, more, more than half my and so I, it's where I nurtured my creativity, my poetry, my community, and it's where I realized, and my healing, my healing started. So I stopped drinking when I was 22. And so a lot of things, you know, happened in the Kudus, my other, other home. But I had to go back home to do the real work. Because I was able to go home every year, my father uh, was the grand chief, and so we all, he's passed away now. Passed away this two years ago when we moved home. He taught me a lot about my culture. Because I would, you know, as a child, he was on the grand council and whatever happened. And so he would listen, right? My children would listen to conversations. And he would go from community to community. And I never understood why until today, because I was meant to listen. I didn't say anything, I was And so, when he passed away, I was grateful that my education would be home. And one by one, my head elders that I was going to work with started to pass away. Mardina, who wrote the choreographic history book, passed away. William Marshall, who was an historian, pastor. And all these people that I mentioned uh, were really good friends of mine and very much promoted. And so, and they were also my mentors. So it's kind of, you know, how do you pass being in mourning one after another? But you also, it, I, I, I had to go back into the language that the this and so I created that theory, you know, this theory. I'm going to be a scholar, I have to come up with a theory. So, <laughs> so I wrote a whole paper on this, which you can do. So think about, you know, if you don't know your language, learn it. And if there are certain things that resonate, figure out why it resonates. Because Numotis is just one word. But it's a very powerful word because it activates that part of you that keeps coming back over and over and over again. And you don't realize why until you're sitting there doing your PhD and go, oh, this is fun.
And so I acknowledge this every time. And for a good reason, because it started that moment. It started as a child, because I often wondered, how come I can't read those things? And why are they so important? And why are they, why is it hanging in every household? And so it, it, it stuck with me. And I do know why today. As I'm going through this whole process, you know, I started to think about, is it meaningful for my own people? Does it make any difference? And will it matter? Does it matter? And so those thoughts started to go through my head when I got home. And I started asking people, and they were all asking me, have you done your PhD? No. <laughs> and, and because they didn't know the process of what happened to your PhD. Because the Mi'kmaq people are actually going, why did you have your PhD? <laughs> Like, uh, you don't ask that question to I don't know what I'll be done. <laughs> but they were like, you know, what are you going to do, Michelle? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I thought, so when the publisher showed up in my email, I realized, what do I do best? What do I do? I'm doing a lot of poetry and I'm doing I like to write the first part of the poetry. It's never been done because the only thing that exists are these Catholic prayers. So from 1670 to 2003. That's, that's huge. How many years is that? It's a long time. While I was home, the first summer, I started asking people, you want to write poetry with me? You want to write higher work with poetry? I don't know what to do. It's going to be really difficult. And so about this process of doing this degree, and how do I make it new? So uh, when the publisher emailed me, give me a deadline. I said, I don't give writers deadlines. I said, well, I'm not your typical writer. I'm an artist, and I need a deadline. <laughs> So I gave me a deadline, and I remember it, May 30th. Send me this many, I said, all right. So it's done that time, right? And he calls me and goes, I think you better send it to an adult. But I have older youth in mind, because I think it's youth in mind. No, 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 send it to an adult. And I had just submitted work to this publisher now, and I called them up. Are you accepting? You want us to publish your work? Yes. And I said, and it will be the first three more hire of poetry. But I'll never forget it, Cheryl. She goes, Michelle, you should know you're, you're a bit of an icon in our household. Why? Because we walked in on a meeting we were doing at Rizal. And I used to organize meetings at Rizal. You're one of my, yes, you did, right? You're one of the first ones. And I would, our writer's script, the Aboriginal writer's best coast collected, we would put on these poetry events. They were amazing because it's incredible poets came and read their work. And we, cho- we would choose a charity. We just wanted to read poetry and have fun. And they walked in when I was doing my, my, my poetry. And at that time, we were using my girl and the musician. So I asked, Anyways, they walked in and they said, We saw you blew us away with the reading. And they hadn't forgotten it. This was like years ago. I think that was the one that Christos was in. And I said, Oh, wow. They never forgot And I said, well, so is that a yes? Are you going to publish it? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yes. I said, oh, perfect. And I said, well, I have the manuscript. And never, ever, ever, ever um, be fearful of asking those unthinkable questions. Because the worst you can get is no. So this is, by then, this is May. 
I said, I'm doing uh, an art exhibit on the language. I'm going to color the hieroglyphics. And at the time, I was going to do it in marble and bone. And I was going to go and find paper and marble. And I said, what are the chances of my book being ready by March 31st? And they're like, and usually it takes two years to publish a book. So they wanted the manuscript. I said, the manuscript is done. And well, now you have to work with an editor. I said, well, find the editor. They love my photography, so they included my photography. So I used nature. And what I was going to do was draw the hieroglyphics on the photographies. Because the hieroglyphics themselves were uh, used as maps. That was the original intent. Nature provided those maps, and so the language comes from the land. It just didn't come out of thin air. So if you, if I'll use the book cover, right? And use this as a map. So let's say you went hunting for a moose or whatever, and you tell somebody, I was around a lake, and then you go up that trail, and then that's where I left. So you can see it as a way of using a map. And so the language comes from the land. And that's a very important aspect of this. And so because the priest stole our narrative, and I say stole because he published his own book, but he also you know, claims quite a few things. And then I also have elders, where oral storytelling and historical timelines are passed down from generation to generation. And so Lillian Marshall, before she passed away, she was my mother's best friend, and she was a historian. And she wrote it on Facebook, and everybody saw it, because I was coming home. And she said, Michelle, make sure you tell them that we always had this language. There's no timeline for that. We always had this language. If it wasn't for uh, the, I guess, the archaeological sites that were found in our territory, the anthropologists and the historians would have kept on saying that my people were rolling in their times for 2,500 years. But we kept saying, no, we've been here a long time. But no one would listen. It's like the priest. The priest never listened. And so those, that's historical narrative that was stolen. And I'm really grateful that those archaeological sites that we, we have now disprove those theories that we've only been there 2,500 years. So they, there's now evidence that we've been there for over 13,000 years, right? And possibly more, because those sites haven't been found. And one of the um, uh, community uh, elders, who was not Mi'kmaq, uh, invited me to go see a, uh, a hieroglyphic stone on a mountain. And it happened the day before I turned 50. Uh, I get there, I thought I was going along the beach, He's like 68 years old, and he takes care of the trails, and he's Scottish. I said, so where are we going? He goes, we're going up there. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? We're going up a mountain, right? <laughs> they're not like here. They're not like Rocky Mountains, or Cape Breton Mountains. They're not like they're and I, But I didn't dress for it. But I also had no choice. I had to go up. I had to go up. And at the top, there was a stone tablet and there was a map. And then somebody else posted another etching of the map. And I started to recognize uh, the significance of, of these carvings in stone, because we have another one in Bedford, which is pre-contact. And that particular piece on top, uh, represents the seven districts of the Nimar nation. And it wasn't done when the white man came. And then there's, uh, and they call them, the white man calls them petroglyphs. 
So when I did my first keynote at the Mi'kmaq Language Conference, I asked my people, I was, I was nervous as hell, I had 600 Mi'kmaq people in the room, language speakers, and I said, we need to reclaim and start calling those pentagrams for what they are, which is the Kumpajalimasiyo, because they tell a story. When you write in your essays and your papers, you're telling a story. They use the English language to tell a story. And so those petroglyphs that they call petroglyphs are also stories. And you need a writing system to tell those stories. So it, it's part of my, I guess, journey now to say, hey, we have to stop calling them petroglyphs and call them for what they are, which is the Gopajalimasi. Because there's stories that were passed out from one generation to the next. That is the short version of my process. And then I started to write. And I included uh, poetry that isn't part of my piece. I included my photography, but I didn't have time um, to include any kind of um, I didn't paint any of the photographs until after. So I'll read a few pieces and you guys will be very patient with me. But a lot of the work, I blend the history and today and tomorrow in some of my poems. So if you, it, 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 it's a way for me to, to tell the, the history of my own people. is the wind. How old is Wajusan drifting around waiting to be discovered? An ancient female spirit, older than time, revealed herself one day, reconfirming how spiritual we are in her infinite wisdom. She reminded me of a dream that came true. Two legged bears with their unknown smells, traveling with purpose to reshape landscapes with their body politics of golden dreams. Power hungry elitists, changing natural laws to legally rape Mother Earth. Colony progress, creating jobs with no desire to protect our water, our food supply, our cultural survival, our air. In retaliation, I imagine raindrops pouring down sideways on every fourth tunnel. Miscarriage, jiksudui. Mother Earth has been tormented, raped, beaten, silenced enough. Help us fight back with your cosmic energy, cosmic light. Wajurusen, fly across each world with your drumbeats of hope to your landscapes of spiritual life forces. This land is sacred. We are here to protect her. This land has memory. We must ensure her vast knowledge is not destroyed. This land has power. We will draw upon her strength to help her in this fight. I love this piece because Trudeau really pissed me off when I was writing this piece. And so I started to like, <laughs> power hungry really does change your natural loss to suit. Yeah, environmental destroyers. I wrote a piece about, it's a breakup poem. I'm a, I'm a child of a survivor, but I also went to day school. So I went home at night. My parents didn't. Um, but we were treated horribly, even in my school. And I have my hands ache to this day because I used to get strapped. And lateral violence was rampant. Abuse was rampant. So it's not a pretty history. So what happens when you fall in love you know, and you meet another person who is also a child of a survivor? And it's been really hard to unravel and undo and decolonize and try to heal from trauma. And the last uh, breakup was with another child of a survivor. And so it dawned on me, uh, 
the process is going to take a while to be healed. So I wrote this. It's called Rebirth. I'm not used to titles. My publisher made me tiny. So I did. So they're all titled. <laughs> the sinew unraveled the senses, challenging us to be real with our emotions, signs of contradiction. Weaving between the recklessness is an inner battle toward the light we seek of desire. Heart trembles, fingers shake. We became oblivious to the rhythm we once shared. Her breath is shallow, it's sinking. No one will rescue us now. Hearts free falling, landing on granite. What will become of the story we once nourished across ocean floors? The whale spoke, the birds sang. Still the heart let her go, despite not being ready. In the river she cleansed her body. In the waterfall, she begged for forgiveness. The heart and mind are difficult organs. The lifeblood of what we truly need becomes real. What does love mean for intergenerational survivors? Whisper our names, Ujimusu. Teach our spirits to listen. Take away the ugliness of selfishness. Dive into mourning. Rise above the clouds, a familiar kind of death has reappeared. Two hearts temporarily broken. Do not hide us from the moon and stars. Allow the sun to nourish our futures apart. What is now a new norm is a sign of strength. If she returns, the door will swing wide open, automatically asking, Will we be gentle with our weaknesses that made us unique? There is no answer to what love represents. Feelings are fragile, rooted to survive. Sing me a song, old one. A new day to love all over again has emerged. I think uh, I spoke too much. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Yeah. Will we take questions? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Folks, do you have questions? Process your mind. I'm also from the East Coast, but I grew up in Fredericton area and then in Halifax a bit. Um, and I was just there researching black loyalist heritage and communities. And I'm interested, like, there's a lot of work being done in Afrocentric education, and I'm sure some of that same work is being done in Mi'kmaq community, communities and Maliseet communities and Passamaquoddy communities. But when I was going through school, my school was still pretty much segregated. So I wonder, like, I think this would be a great resource for people to have in schools. Is there any plan to, like, have this distributed through like high schools, middle schools, or like I hope in, so. like educators. Yeah, because I found the when you read it, um, there's I purposely had it uh, in English, the phonetic, and hieroglyphics, so that people will learn. Um, some of these words are old, and I asked my elders as we were editing. I said. Even the ones that didn't know how to say it. And I said, Should I modernize it so that I could say it in public? And they said, No, because I might meet somebody who can read it. And we should preserve the, the original um, translation. Right? And so it's. Um, so I, I did that on purpose so that they can go into school systems and, and children, adults, whoever know how to do three different languages, three different ways. It is a goal. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. I've seen, like, I think his name is Alan Suliboy. Yeah, I invited him to my first exhibit. Yeah. Because he paints the country books. 
Mm-hmm. And I wanted that conversation. And that's yeah. where I started the conversation about, you know, we need to actually stop calling them introverts because they tell stories. And he's been doing the research on what those mean. Mm-hmm. And that's language. That's what is our writing system. And we use that to tell stories as writers if you're here as creative writers. I was just curious if there's any um, like specific meter that you're following while writing poetry, or if you just is it more like free verse, I guess. Or? You know, I when I write, I don't know if you ever do. You remember the movie Shine? It's about a pianist, and uh, his father forces him to to learn the most difficult classical piece, and it's a uh, rock tree, rock enough. Mm-hmm. And it's done in three parts. And so I will write my papers listening to Rachmaninoff <laughs> <laughs> and zone out people. But I also know that um, sometimes something just takes over and I can't explain it. And I often don't remember those moments when something happens. And so I listen to that spirit, I listen to that ancestor that wants to English. Some of those poems are in here, and some I actually sat down in. But you have to really, you know, it's like musicians, you know, you only hear heartbreak songs. Oh, hear happy songs. <laughs> Poetry's the same, you have to be pissed off, or, or in love, or not in love, or <laughs> But yeah, um, I don't follow. But I must be because I'm listening to to sounds and I'll read it over and over. And I read it out loud. If I don't like the sound. I was really um, lucky because in my early twenties I met writers um, in Vancouver and they were much older than me. And I was very grateful that they, they allowed me to take part in their writing group. And we read poetry to each other. And it really helped when somebody else was sitting there maybe you should change this part. Or it didn't really sound, what do you mean by that? But reading it out loud with other people really helps. Even if it's just to yourself, and record yourself, which I often do, I often record myself. If I don't like my voice, then obviously somebody else is going to pick it up. And, you know, knowing Larissa, and most of our friends are all writers, uh, and watching them live, you know, every time Larissa comes out of the book, you know, Hiromi, everybody that we know together, um, it really helped listening to people. And then you go, okay, I, I enjoy uh, the way they interact with people and how they decide, but, you know, it's that feeling, right? Definitely reading it out loud. It actually makes so much sense to hear it. And a good editor. Any other questions? Yes. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the connection between your visual art practice and the writing. And that's something that intersects a lot of oh, work, actually. So the, the whale bones. Yeah. Uh, the well is, is interesting because it's not the first time the wells came into my life. I went to, when I was in my undergrad, I went to New Zealand to a practice with a, a Maori carver. And they showed up um, during the Commonwealth Games, and I think it was uh, 1990, it happened in Victoria. And I was working with these women who were selling native rights and crafts, and these Maori women came up. And we started chatting. And I had this jade piece, and I thought, I'm going to give it to a Maori person if I need them. And he came, and I asked him, I said, What are you doing? Because I'm a carver. And I said, Oh, I said, I'm just at art school, and I'd like to learn. I'll teach you. And I said, Careful what you say, because I'm going to call you on. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And I wrote him a letter, because it was going to have time to write letters. And he, he wrote back and goes, come. So I went to New Zealand. And I carved a, I don't have it, I'll tell you the story, but I carved a, the creation story that you taught me, the book, right? Out of whalebone. 
And I had that peace for 25 years. And within those 25 years, I had incredible dreams. The whales kept emerging over and over and over. In a span of 25 years, I have these incredible dream stories. And the last dream that I remember was these whales stood up in the ocean and they, they just honored me and one of them came over, turned into a woman and said, you're on the right track with your writing. We've been nudging you along. It was always a paw of whales. It was never just one whale. And they kept coming over and over and over. And I thought, okay. The whales are, you know, I thought they were, like, that was it, but it wasn't. So, when you do your PhD, you have to present your work. So I applied to present my work at Mesa, and I got in, and I presented. And I realized at that time, because I had just finished the exhibition, and I finished carving the whales, I have to take this whale home now. It finished, it finished its job. When I meet someone, I'm going to, I'm taking the whale home because it came from there. And I didn't know who I was going to meet. No clue. During the, this is the doctoral part of the, the conference, and, and it was all indigenous doctoral students from all over the world. And the, Organizer Leone looks at me, looks at my friend, goes, You're a poet, you're a poet. You guys should get up and go read. That's what the other people do, they just do it. So, <laughs> I'm like, okay. So we got up, and she stood right across the hall from me, and I stood up, and we started reading from our books, you know, and, and we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And after it was over, she wrote, you need to meet my sister. Okay. <laughs> and then um, I said, well, where is she? She goes, she's in Auckland, because the conference was in Hamilton. Um, I said, when do you leave? I said, July 4th. But I will come a couple of days early and we'll spend time with you. Okay. So she picks me up, and off we go. And we ended up in the hospital. Her sister was dying of cancer. Did you get there? And, She's having an anxiety attack. So I started doing um, acupressure points that I learned from my friend, uh, Lily. And I, started, I, I did some um, teaching, teachable moments. I, her sisters were all there. I said, I want you to remember these acupressure points so you'll be able to help your sister when I'm gone. And so I did it, well, she went. During that time, I said, um, there's some tea that we were told that you should drink when you have cancer. And in English, they call it chaga. And it's the mushroom of the birch tree. And it's loaded with vitamins. So whenever this chemo does, the chaga will replace the minerals in your body. There was no time to, to send for it. So we went to a health food store. And they had it. I went back to the, the hospital and I said, we found it. I was very happy. And we went back to the house and I made the tea. And I went back the next day and I said, okay, you have to tell the tea. This will only work if you believe it. And you also have to acknowledge the tea and the medicine and the ancestors. Why do you need this? Thank the tea and drink it. It's okay. And she wanted to go to Hawaii before she passed away. She knew she was dying. And so I said, well, tell the tea. Tell the, tell the medicine. What do you say? And then off I went to the airport with the sister. And I realized then and there, that when I was walking away, I have to give my will to her. And she had to return it to the spirit world because it had done its job. And so on, a, on my way to the airport, I told the two, and I said, the two, I have a request. And I told her, she goes, oh my God, Michelle, good off. And I gave it to her, and I said, I want your sister to thank 
do what I believe to give back to this world. And she did. And she wore, she, Emma told her, I'm not going to wear it until after my chemo is done. And when the chemo was done, she put it on. And the doctors gave her uh, the go ahead for the Hawaii. She wanted to meet her family there in the last time. And then they showed me they had put it on her and she passed away shortly after uh, coming back from Hawaii. But that will go um, taught me so much in 25 years. So when I was doing my, uh, when I was cleaning the bones, my brother found the oil. He works for the uh, Department of Highways, so he's always driving around all over Cape Breton. He spotted it. And he's very gifted. He goes, Michelle, the oil doesn't want to be forgotten. I said, oh, well, let's go get it. So we, we did our ceremony. And I told the world what I was doing, I was doing a PhD, and I'm going to uh, you know, carve the hieroglyphics. And he's, this is my older brother, what are you going to carve? <laughs> I don't know. And he kept saying that, what are you going to carve? What are you going to carve? I don't know, I don't know. Let's go. So I spent you know, the winter sanding. Because it stinks, it's a dead carcass. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no time to bury it. Mm -hmm. My opening was March 31st, so I spent the whole winter standing and praying and asking, what am I going to do? And then, um, I don't know when it happened, but there was an orca in uh, Victoria, a mother carrying her baby for 17 days. Well, you know that story. But it's really like, I, I, I couldn't get that mother out of my head. And then I realized I have to tell the whale's story. And I have to tell the whale's story how climate change impacts the whale's environment. So I chose one of the whale bones and wrote. And then I went into the community because you can't do things by yourself. So I asked one question. I went to parties, they came to my studio. And I ask people, you know, if you could tell the well anything, what would you say? And they have to choose from the hieroglyphic dictionary a statement. And then I carve those statements into the little bones. But you will see a truck. It was a collaborage. And it was very interesting what people chose. You know, they were asking for forgiveness, and they were asking for help and guidance. It's, it's quite helpful. And I didn't really mess around too much because at the edge of the, the bone, it looks like someone's foot, like a person's foot. And I didn't want to take it off because it's a connection to humanity. So when you see that foot, you automatically think it's someone's, it's a human foot. And so there's that kind of a subliminal connection to mankind or humanity, right? And so I just left it. It, it always depends what's going on. Mm -hmm. So there's an intimate connection between the, the visual and the, because the visual is the story. And yeah. 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 And also, you know, it's we're all connected in the story. So people from all walks of life participated. I I didn't know them, or I knew them. I never knew where where it was gonna be. And I ended up carving the whales um, in an annex of a church. I thought it was quite interesting, considering who published the, the hieroglyphics. And this is a church that was retired, and three women bought it, and then they turned it into a community hub. But it, it's just bizarre how things are like lining up that way, but you don't question it, right? And I'm going to spend the winter writing my dissertation in my bags. You never question it because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions before I do? I have a, a, a sort of, for those of us, particularly for those of who are non indigenous, um, about, and this is coming out of a course that I'm, I'm teaching on, on uh, critical indigenous studies in the English department here, and we've been looking at the the calls to action and being near indigenous languages and so forth. And um, 
we've been talking a lot about resistance to, to, to those of us who don't, don't know how to start learning indigenous languages, say, if this is territory, so forth. And I'm, I find that a real struggle. Like, what, what is it that we, we can do to, to address that resistance, which, which I share? I started learning Cree, which is not a, a language of this treaty area, rather than say for Blackbird or Stone. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested that as this sort of year of indigenous languages comes to an end, how many of us, how, how we can address that fear. It's really a fear about learning indigenous languages. I'm lucky that you can learn my language from kindergarten to university. And the universities in, your, in the territory need to take responsibility and hire indigenous scholars in the language. And if they're in the territory, they share amongst many different nations. And those nations should be represented in the institution. And they need to be held accountable. And they may not want to hear those. I mean, if not, that conversation has to be put together. And they often won't, because I need to take responsibility for something that's been wanted. Not just non but even native people. How do you make this instead of this? You have to, at some point, you have to read. Which is why when I did the Wilbos, I, I invited people from all walks of life. They weren't just Mi'kmaq people, they were Scottish, gay, like everybody. Yeah. And I needed, I wanted that because I wanted that conversation to The whale's environment. What does that mean? We share the world's environment. We pollute the world's environment. We're responsible for the garbage that ends up in the world's environment. Even though you're here, away from the ocean, your garbage still goes out. Because it has to be taken somewhere. Where does it, where does it go? And so there's that kind of, you know, all the things that come across so that you can enjoy the riches of whatever it is. Everything gets shipped in a boat. And that boat goes across the world's environment. Somebody has to take the reins and go, we need languages to be part of the institution. I don't know the communities here have immersion programs. Um, I don't know that information, but it'd be interesting to what are the native people here doing? Because children have to be taught, right? But there's a lot of adults that are wanting to learn that, which is great. Just moving. You have to take the first <laughs> If you're the ally, and allies often you know, have to stand beside those that are dependent. Risk has been a very good ally. Many years. I told you she was blind to her language. Oh, no, I guess you were. <laughs> In your own gentle way. But <laughs> <laughs> so, your words are powerful. And people know it. It's when she was going to go down my program. Yeah. We just met her, but she's devoted her lifetime. There you go. Yeah. So it's, it's about holding the institutions accountable. And you know how I said the story, how our narrative was stolen. And even though we told, you know, the settlers, we've been here a long time. And it wasn't until they were given proof that they would change the narrative. And if you're a settler with privilege, how do you organize those privileges? What do you do with that privilege? You're a young white man. You have privilege. How do you exercise that right? What are you going to do to, to support whatever comes? Because they're going to listen to you. Um, what are you going to do about it? And sometimes you, do, you have to hold people accountable to go, hey, you need to do something. You need to do it. It's hard, though. It's really hard. It's so I don't know, how, how many language classes are here? There are, no, we have language classes and just three? No, Blackfoot, Stony, Cree. We don't have language classes in September, do 
And then the writing symbols launch, which is our students, indigenous And are those are the characters? Are they um, tenure? No, um, one one of them is. And that's the other thing. Oh, two, no, two of them are. So are they, they you, need, you need them to be tender, to, to protect so that it continues. Harder and real or indigenous languages. We hope you enjoyed this talk by Michelle Slaboy. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts in the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are located, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Gillain, Paul Meunier, Joshua Whitehead, Marjorie Rugunda, Ryan Stern, Aruna Srivastava, as well as myself. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For additional work from the Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That is tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.